Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. I'm Lucas Perry. Today's episode is with Jan Tallinn and explores topics such as humanity's weak points and blind spots, how Jan thinks about and prioritizes existential risks, AI as a delegation process, coordination and incentive issues, the short-term and long-term AI safety communities, as well as Jan's philanthropic efforts. If you enjoy this podcast and are not already subscribed, you can follow us on your favorite podcasting platform by searching for the Future of Life Institute podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, you can also leave us a review on iTunes. It's a huge help for getting the podcast to more people. For those not familiar with Jan, Jan Tallinn is a programmer, investor, philanthropist, founding engineer of Skype, and co-founder of the Future of Life Institute and Center for the Study of Existential Risk. Jan is a longtime thinker and activist in the realm of existential risk issues, particularly existential risk from artificial intelligence. Jan has also served on the Estonian President's Academic Advisory Board and has given a number of high-profile public talks on existential risk issues. You can check some of those out on our YouTube channel. And without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Jan Tallinn. To start things off here, I'm curious if you could explain what you see as crucial for our species to improve upon or to understand in the 21st century, given how frustrating it is at many levels about how human civilization functions and where our pitfalls and failure modes are. So a cop-out answer would be that I wish we were more intelligent. A metaphor I have is that if you can zoom out and look at uh, what's going on on astronomical scales, then um, it's probably the most salient or important fact about humanity is that we are minimum viable superintelligence builders. If we were even just a little less smart, we couldn't build it. It's possible that we can't build it, but I think it's unlikely. And if we were much smarter, we probably would have built it already. So yeah, that's why I'm going to... I do think that uh, things like intelligence augmentation technologies, such as uploading or various augmentations, might be a net positive, although they come with, with their own risks. So when it comes to more detailed answers, I don't think I have like very good answers, but uh, there are obvious things like uh, coordination definitely helps. Sometimes when people say that, in the past, they used to get this uh, question a lot, like, if we are afraid of AI, why don't we just turn it off? I think the, my answer would be like, uh, if we are so scared of nuclear disaster, why don't we just launch them? So the issue is that, uh, we have coordination problems. We are tend to in, get involved in races because other people get involved in races and then we can't get out. And I do think that this might be very important in the context of AI as well. So then there's this importance of increasing human intelligence as we begin to build machines that are more intelligent. Can you explain a little bit more about why that's so important and how that helps to maintain something like alignment and control? Yeah, so the usual argument is that um, it's very plausible that it is easier to build unaligned AI than it is to build aligned AI. So if you are just barely smart enough to build an AI, it's much more likely that you're going to build unaligned AI. And by you, I mean human civilization. So that's why it's gonna, it would be very useful to increase the margin of error before you actually push the button and let an AI lose. Do you mean decrease the margin of error? Increase the margin of error, or increase the sort of the amount of... Um, in engineering, usually the margin of error means the 
how much over-engineering you have done, like how much the systems can fail before there's a catastrophic failure. So, yeah. So, as synthetic biology and human augmentation and engineering techniques begin to improve, you see that as potentially important for leveraging our capabilities around building aligned AI? Yeah, I do think that useful tools, I think, are very valuable as long as there are like obvious ways to control them. Like the problem of AI is that AI can be a tool, and it is a tool mostly right now. But uh, once it gets sufficiently advanced, it might be very difficult to you know, control it. Whereas like uh, synthetic biology, it has its own failure modes, like pandemics, obviously. But at least it's not going to do like you know, strate- strategy, and it doesn't have general intelligence, which uh, still kind of gives humans some upper hand. You've mentioned that there are coordination issues, which are quite frustrating. Can you be a bit more specific about other pitfalls that the human species kind of keeps running into? And I think perspective on how is it that it's possible to change into something in which that isn't an issue? Almost as if like if you were to go to another planet and see another species that were more successful than us, that were coming upon the age of AGI, what would they look like relative to us? And how is it that they don't fail in coordination like we do and uh, collective action problems and avoid the kinds of pitfalls that the human species falls into? I'm thinking also about issues with incentives. And I think this is also something we'll get into later. You also talk about, I think you're quoting someone else here, but you can let me know if that's right or wrong. You've mentioned before that the most dangerous things are non-human optimizers like corporations. So just looking broadly for clarity and thoughts around all this. Again, sort of simple answers to what alien, what an alien species looks like that doesn't have an issue with coordination. Well, obviously like a high mind or some kind of uh, top-down hierarchy where everything is sort of under control in some much more stronger sense that uh, in a kind of human civilization that is uh, like a large multi-agent system where agents are roughly equal in power. So that's like a simple case. Now, I do think that uh, like humanity still has some Coordination, obviously, like UN, and it has been criticized a lot, but it does have some wins in the past. Like uh, fixing the ozone layer is something that has been brought out as an example of uh, UN-led successes. Another important thing is that like UN is uh, roughly 100 years old, a little bit less, and uh, a lot of the coordination mechanisms and organizations that uh, humanity has, uh, they tend to be like fairly old, that they are like pre-internet. So like, one thing that I'm especially interested in is what kind of uh, new technologies can human civilization use when it comes to building better coordination mechanisms. And in particular, I do think that that's one of the most powerful thing about blockchains. So one interesting way to frame blockchains is that uh, now for the last 10 years or so, we have lived in a regime where it's possible for the entire civilization to agree about a piece of data without Kind of anyone having to trust anyone to maintain that consensus. So I think that's a new powerful feature that we didn't have a little bit more than a decade ago. And perhaps we can use it to actually solve various coordination challenges. So there's making humans more intelligent as our technology starts to get more and more powerful. There's also inventing new technologies that help with coordination. Are there any other specific weaknesses that you see in human civilization in the 21st century? Well, I mean, intelligence and coordination seem to be like uh, pretty much cover everything, but they're like very super high level things. 
Uh, obviously, if we're going to start drilling down on what exactly is the problem with human intelligence, like, well, there's this great story called They Are Made Out of Meat. Well, there were two kind of, uh, aliens visit the solar system and then kind of, uh, see that this looks very embarrassing. We shouldn't report it because like, it's sort of intelligent, but they're made out of meat. This is just ridiculous. Yeah, and they squish air through their meat flaps to communicate. Yeah. Exactly. So that is like a huge disadvantage when it comes to kind of intelligent agents. Uh, possible. In the space of intelligent agents, we barely work. So like uh, a lot of the problems that we have, a lot of the sort of low-hanging fruit have to do with things that have to do with the fact that we are biologicals. Like we, like, uh, for example, Elon Musk has been saying that like the purpose of Neuralink is to kind of solve the bottleneck between humans and AI, which is the bandwidth. Like I claim that bandwidth is not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is the speed difference. Humans run about one million to one billion times slower than a normal AI would. Yeah, my understanding of what Elon is talking about there is that the download for humans is much faster because of the way vision and auditory senses work. So it's a lot easier to absorb information than it is to express it because either you have to speak or you have to use your thumbs on like a keyboard. And if you, I think, measure the number of bits that you can encode, you know, with your thumbs and fingers on a keyboard versus you can absorb. It seems like part of the Neuralink is for changing that so that the output is higher. Sure. I'm not arguing that the communication bandwidth for humans is very small, very narrow, and it could be improved by orders of magnitude, sure. But even if you do that, like uh, the ultimate bandwidth, you will hit just the next bottleneck, and that next bottleneck is just much, much bigger when it comes to the difference which is just a speed difference. Uh, we really would need to upload humans and run them faster in order to be com competitive with AI. I think Robin Hanson has this uh, hilarious quip where he said that trying to make humans competitive with AI by increasing the bandwidth is just like trying to make horses competitive with cars by making the ropes stronger. That makes sense. So I think that's helpful. There being like multiple different bottlenecks. The bottlenecks yep, of exactly. the processing speed, but then also the input and output bandwidth. And those are all different things. And the biggest one you're saying is the processing speed. And so that can get fixed by human uploading. So if there's an order of operations or a procedure here for moving into the future, what does that look like? So does that look like human augmentation, making humans smarter than making AGI that doesn't lead to X risk, having the AGI help make human uploads, then leveraging the human uploads to iterate again on the AGI and make it double check for safety and alignment? Yeah, so that's definitely like one possible future that uh, might be safer than the default one. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be, personally, I don't think it's likely that we would have ability to upload ourselves before we had the Nova AI. Before we had what, sorry? The Nova AI, which means uh, AI that's just built not by mimicking humans, but from from first principles, basically, or like from just training lots of black boxes is, is the most likely scenario. Unless like uh, something starts giving out. I mean, people who I know who are training black boxes, they say that they do not see diminishing returns yet, which is concerning. Can you explain why that's concerning? Because if we saw diminishing returns to the amount of uh, computing power we are throwing at those black boxes, then uh, we would have some confidence that we still have time because we are missing something very fundamental. Whereas like, if we do not see diminishing returns, like who knows how far we're going to get before we 
it's possible that we are going to pull an evolution. Like evolution didn't know what it was doing, and it, it built something that is stronger than it, itself. So like it's possible that, that we will do the same thing to our detriment. One thing I've heard you say that I quite like was you said the amount of runway time left for humanity is not measured in world clock time, but in computational clock cycles. So we have a certain amount of compute yeah. cycles left. And so when computation gets better, we lose out on time to solve AI alignment. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much like a sort of condensed version of what I just said. It's still possible that this is not true, obviously, but it's still possible that we are missing something like very fundamental in terms of architecture. And we will see diminishing returns and get stuck again and new AI winter descends, although I don't believe that because AI is profitable now. But it's, I think it's much more likely that we, now it's just kind of uh, whenever somebody throws more cycles and like engineers better hardware to get more cycles, we'll just get much more closer in proportion, which means that indeed the amount of time that humanity has left is measured in clock cycles, not in actual sidereal time. Interesting. It's giving me a little bit of the vibes of uh, Carl Sagan's Contact or the first book in the three-body problem. Have you read either of those? I've seen a movie of Contact and I did read the three-body problem. I especially like the second and third book. The first one I didn't like that much, but yeah, I think it's a great series. One book I know that you're a big fan of, or I think two fiction stories I think you know, I know you're a big fan of are Hanu Rajamani's. I'm not sure if I said that right. Rajamani. Quantum Thief. And then the, I think it might be Scott Alexander's story about this superintelligence a causally trading across the universe? Yeah, I think the... What is that yeah, one called? Demiurge's older brother. It's a really fascinating short story. Probably, yeah, probably one of the most fascinating short stories that I read. And it kind of, in a fictional form, makes this plausible case that uh, moral realism might be true in some very interesting sense. Basically, the idea is that uh, once an AI wakes up and kind of figures out, okay, what is my strategy to proceed from now? It might think about, wait a minute, I might not be the first. And then like, the question is like, what is an expected outcome for an AI that starts thinking about what kind of norms should I follow if I'm part of a society, not the only one? Now the question is, is there yeah, some kind of attractors in ethics space, so to speak? We know that uh, human ethics kind of uh, emerged as a result of game theory in some sense, like uh, tribes that had some kind of ethics, ethical norms, they were more competitive than the other tribes that didn't. So uh, it's possible that the same thing happens with other agents, including AIs. And yeah, as Scott Alexander's short story, the marriage older brother, makes this case very interesting. It also covers the Fermi paradox, but I think that's like a side point of the story. So maybe we can... Uh touch a little bit more on that soon. As we begin to wrap up this, I think, a very high level view of the 21st century and the kinds of problems that humans are running into, we mentioned two things, I think, at the highest level. One was increasing human intelligence, and the other was the difficulties of coordination. Two other things that I want to throw out here before we move on are, you've highlighted the importance of making the creation of AI feel dangerous, like airplane and spaceship construction feels dangerous to engineers. I think you might have been quoting Stuart Russell when you said that. Awesome. And another thing that you've mentioned was the nuclear power industry killed itself by downplaying the risks. That one is Stuart's. And I definitely agree that uh, I think AI industry might have been in a better position than nuclear industry was because like, it came later and kind of look at the mistakes uh, that nuclear power industry made. 
it, indeed, the reason why nuclear power isn't abundant in the world is largely because the industry don't play the risks to their own detriment. Do you feel like the creation of AI doesn't feel sufficiently dangerous to AI engineers? I think the situation is definitely improving. I mean, I've been in this AI safety racket, so to speak, for more than 10 years now. And back then, like the people were just people in kind of AI capabilities business, that is like AI researchers, they were like very dismissive of uh, AI being potentially dangerous. Right now, I still get like some pushback when I talk to like older people in the AI research community, but even they are much more subdued now. And uh, young, capable people are like, yep, we totally have a line of problem. That's like, seems to be very, yeah, I think that the problem of uh, people not realizing that AI can be potentially dangerous, at least in the West, doesn't seem to be a problem. Perhaps like on, on a sort of intuitive level still, I mean, even myself, I don't, when I look at the piece of code, it doesn't feel dangerous. That's like a problem with me and other biologicals rather than... Uh, <laughs> and other biologicals. With. Exactly. <laughs> Is that what we're going to be, be called in 50 years? Yeah, if you're still around, <laughs> possibly. Let's talk a little bit then about whether or not we'll still be around. It seems like one of the, your main focuses is on the risk of AI. How do you generally think about and view the various realms of existential threat? So I'm curious about how you relate AI risk to areas like synthetic bio, climate, and nuclear weapons risk. How you rank the priority and the necessity of action and um, human awareness on these issues? Yeah, I sort of use the framework that effective altruist movement has adopted, which is looking at problems and seeing like are they important, are they tractable, and are they neglected? Neglected, exactly. And on that scale, like AI risk seems to like still be much higher than any any other risk. But like in terms of uh, just existential risks, my top three is uh, yeah, first one is AI, second one is synthetic biology, and the third one still is sort of unknown unknowns because like both AI risk and synthetic biology is less than hundred years old as a concept, and it's very possible that in the next century we will get. Uh, another contender for the top three, so I'm kind of leaving that spot open. Nuclear is very interesting, I think, uh, because nuclear is the first existential risk that humanity faced, and you can kind of make the case that uh, there was a decade during which nuclear was a clear existential danger, which was from the mid-30s to the mid-40s, because during that decade it wasn't known whether the planet would survive the first nuclear detonation. In fact, the Manhattan Project scientist A did a uh, first existential risk research that humanity had done, which was the report LA602, and they found that, yep, we have our 3x margin, if I remember correctly. And then the next very important calculation about thermonuclear yield, they actually messed up. <laughs> so it's like, uh, it was an interesting case. Sorry, what is the 3x margin? My understanding is that they were worried that setting off the first nuclear weapon might ignite the atmosphere. Yeah. Again, I might be wrong here, but uh, the way I understood it was that they are concerned that uh, the nuclear, the Manhattan or the Trinity test basically would create a thermonuclear explosion by turning the planet into a thermonuclear device by having the nitrogen in the atmosphere to fuse. And then they calculated what is the kind of the energy concentration that that's going to be. Is it going to be enough to fuse nitrogen? And they found that that looks like we still have some margin there. Yeah, and as per Nick Bostrom's thought experiment, we're lucky that nuclear weapons didn't only require microwaving sand, which is a nice historical fact. Exactly. Like 
I say that we have gotten unlucky with laws of physics two times. One is that uh, exactly what you just said, that it's not easy to create nuclear weapons. It's uh, just uh, kind of written in laws of physics, so to speak, how easy it is. And second is that, that you can't destroy the entire planet with a nuclear weapon, which is not a you know, lucky thing. It wasn't obvious in the 30s. I just listened to the Richard Rhodes making of the atomic bomb. It's a great audiobook. I mean, it's a great book, but the audiobook was like super well narrated. It just it totally gives you the feeling of, especially at the moments before the test, like what people thought, etc. It's like very kind of almost poetically written, like how, how people were like, okay, are the last moments we see? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, I think, emotionally and experientially connect with what that might have been like. Probably be a really good movie. Yeah. I wonder if there have already been such movies. Yeah, maybe. I haven't talked to that. So before we get back to talking a bit about the particular existential risks and how you rank and think about them, do you think that that fact that it's not easy to make nuclear weapons, what is the second example of a technology that is an X risk that you said we got lucky on? Oh, it's just like laws of physics. Like Both are about uh, nuclear weapons still, but the first is that it's kind of hard to use one device to blow the planet up. And second is that it's hard to even build this device. If you think about that, two distinct things. It's hard to blow the planet up and it's hard to make the device. Yeah, yeah. Is that really luck though? And I mean, this I think is interesting and important because it would change our expectation of how easy it will be for unknown unknown technologies to proliferate and be devastating. I have some vague intuition that you know, these things require civilizations to discover. And if anything were really sufficiently easy, it seems like there might have been a chance that evolution would have found it if it made some species really powerful. So everything has to be beyond the reach of evolutionary forces. Yeah, I mean, we already, already know that there are like a ton of things out of reach of evolutionary forces. Like the most prominent one is radio, right? Evolution never started using radio. Never discovered radio. Yeah, it just did not use radio. And firearms. There are like some mechanical stuff that evolution does, but no actual chemical explosives. I see. That's an interesting way to think about it. It doesn't do chemical explosives. It doesn't do radio. So it seems like some of these things require civilization and culture and um, general intelligence. Or just like way more time for evolution. It's just like a, it's a large design space and, and you need kind of... Uh, evolution is like, very constrained when it comes to optimization processes. You can't think ahead. So therefore, it can't do like... Kind of, we only, only can incremental steps. That's like a big constraint. It seems like we're kind of hitting low-hanging fruit. And if we get any fruit of technologies that are even more powerful and devastating, that the higher that you're going on the tree intrinsically, the more difficult it is to produce those things. It's like some feeling of being skeptical that there will be unknown unknowns that are cheap and easy to make and could easily proliferate. I think like the, a person climbing a tree isn't a great metaphor because... Like the height of the tree depends on the context, the existing technology, technological environment, basically. It's barely possible to build a quantum computer in the 21st century. It's clearly totally impossible to do that 200 years ago. So it's like, uh, yeah, as long as you're kind of like, technology builds on technology. So like whenever you get the new technology that was like a low-hanging gish. Trees fruit, getting shorter. Like another, exactly, a new, entire new landscape might open up. I see, that's interesting. So... As time goes on, the capacity to build nuclear weapons becomes easier and easier. I think that's also uh, literally true, that it's easier to build nuclear weapons now than it was 100 years Right, ago. so wouldn't we expect that of any technology that has to do with existential risk? I think so, yeah. It's still like 
there might be hidden assumption that there wouldn't be kind of explicit constraints against existential risks. So if there was some kind of coordination regime that prevents building existential risk, risk existential risky technologies, then obviously it becomes harder. So you ranked your top as AI, synthetic bio, then unknown unknowns. So for this unknown unknown category, you take very seriously the threat of some new easy to produce discovery being an existential risk. Yeah, yeah, new discovery. And it even could be some like, yeah, some kind of strange considerations like uh, simulation hypothesis and stuff that you just can't easily think about yet. Like if you kind of grow philosophical and epistemically, we, we might kind of uh, just have some kind of ontological change and see like, wait a minute, we didn't consider X that we currently don't know. Like the simulation is only there to test civilizations in the age of AGI. And like once they like get through it, they like turn the simulation off or something like that. Who knows? Yeah, there are certainly very weird things about this point in time. Before we move on to that, so climate and nuclear weapons both didn't make your top three. Can you explain to me why you don't see, for example, accidental nuclear war and intentional nuclear war in the 21st century as really serious existential threats? Particularly because if we reflect on how increasingly powerful technologies will lead to perhaps uh, race dynamics between countries and competition and increasing tensions and the risk of escalation of conflict, why the threat of nuclear weapons isn't higher on your list? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there are always kind of like weird secondary effects that you might uh, consider. And like they indeed might realize, but like it's very hard to kind of put them confidently into, into your models. In terms of like first order effects, as far as people have calculated, it seems just like really hard to kill everyone with a nuclear, by detonating all the nuclear weapons. You want like, yeah, the area that you can cover. Also, I guess the main danger still is like the main disaster comes from the nuclear winter, but still it's kind of very plausible that like thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand, or a few million people would survive, which seems sufficient to rebuild civilization. So like, sure, there is some risk of everyone perishing as a result of nuclear winter. But uh, as far as people have calculated, people whose kind of research ability I trust, like Toby Ord in his book Precipice, yeah, it kind of seems less plausible to kill everyone with nuclear weapons or with climate change than it is with uh, synthetic biology or AI. Again, I don't want to kind of like dismiss those Catastrophic risks, clearly they are like a huge catastrophic risk. In fact, the, the place where I'm sitting is probably going to be like very high up on the, on the target lists. I'm currently sitting in Tallinn, Estonia. But yeah, I think there's a big difference. As uh, was it Bernard Russell who first said it, that there's a difference between killing 99% of people and 100% of people and the difference is not 1%. Derek Parfit. Oh, it was it Parfit. Okay, I stand corrected. That's Derek Parfit's thought experiment. You lose out on the all the life in the deep future that originates from Earth. It's interesting. It seems like if one is really committed to long-termism and that kind of view that we're playing on the order of cosmological time, like the game of ethics and life, it seems to cut pretty close in my intuition around nuclear winter and whether that ends up being existential or catastrophic. Yeah, I would just currently defer to Toby Ord's precipice. I can't remember, remember exactly like what he said, but I think it was like in order of 1% or less that nuclear is, a, is an actual existential risk. Toby's claim is there's a 1% chance that it's an existential risk. I don't remember it being over 1% there, but it might not be much more, I don't remember. 
Climate change is much more obviously closer to a global catastrophic risk, though. We've had Kelly Wanzer on the podcast, who's talked about uncertainty around really catastrophic uh, runaway versions of climate change. How do you see, sorry, with, where the runaway includes cascading effects that are unpredictable, you know, that lead to phytoplankton dying in the ocean, which then messes with the atmosphere and other things. How do you see that as playing together with these other top three existential risks of yours? Yeah, I mostly see it as something that is uh, kind of, uh, not acute, uh, it's very plausibly an existential risk but probably not in the next 10 years or next, even next 50 years, whereas AI totally is an existential risk in the next 10 or 50 years. And vice versa, if you kind of really get the AI right, it seems like all the other risks become much more manageable, and therefore, like, sort of, for kind of pragmatic reasons, I would not prioritize AI. Right, so AI is the key to existential security, should it be aligned and beneficial. Exactly. Can you expand a bit more on your view on the risk of synthetic biology and the relationship between AI systems and other technologies being able to really ramp up and kind of proliferate the technology of pathogen engineering for de deadly pandemics or deadly pathogens? Yeah, so like from sort of first principle thinking, it kind of goes back to this uh, evolution versus humans uh, exploring a design space. And evolution doing it in a very kind of constrained way and in some ways horrible way, like creates organisms that eat other organisms, like what kind of pervert would do that? But on the other hand, it's like um, much more benign than like uh, really sort of determined humans could be because like evolution doesn't like deliberately build organisms to you know, wipe out other organisms. It like does that only by accident, whereas humans could actually kind of sit down and do a project. Uh, to build something really dangerous. Humans are, in some very real sense, more powerful optimizers, more powerful designers than evolution is. Evolution just had a lot more time, but it was like way more constrained than humans are. Uh, therefore, like if you're going to now let humans loose in the biological design space, it's very possible that we're going to get, hopefully, a lot of good things will fall out, but uh, possibly things that are just like way more dangerous than any, anything that evolution would build. And so you see that as plausibly killing all people? Yeah, that seems. I like other, like I'm like way less expert on biology than I am on computers and, and AI. So uh, yeah, I would kind of defer to experts here, but like currently I haven't heard strong arguments that it's not really possible to create something that is much, much more dangerous than anything that evolution has built. So when coming up with these top three and putting synthetic bio on number two, what are the motivations for that, or where does that exactly come from? It comes from, yeah, both the plausibility, which is, uh, yeah, I think I haven't heard like really good arguments why it's not plausible to build you know, species-ending replicators in biospace. And second is like urgency, because right now synthetic biology is happening as we speak, and so in, in some sense it's even happening faster than AI. So uh, yeah, kind of if you can combine the urgency and the risk. That's why it kind of earns it the second place. So as we're talking about biology, another blind spot or failure mode of human civilization that we can reflect on is our short memories and that we tend to learn from mistakes rather than to oh, do yeah. something like expected value calculations and then apply resources as per that calculation and estimation. We're getting close to the end of the coronavirus pandemic. 
at least all of the lockdown should be ending hopefully in the next few months, which is really great. Unless you're in EU. Unless <laughs> you guys are going on for longer. <laughs> or like Asia or Africa, sure. But yeah, I mean, EU hasn't done very well in, in when it comes to vaccine. I mean, it's still better than Africa and Asia, but like much worse than UK or, or US. I see. So we're living in a global event that was precipitated because we couldn't and were not able to listen to the warnings of many experts who were saying that a pandemic was in fact coming. So it's both having to learn from mistakes and also not having the foresight to do expected value calculations to mitigate risks and apply resources effectively. I think Anthony Aguirre says something like our default mode is to think of the whatever the most likely scenario is, and then just basically plan and live as if that is the thing that is definitely going to happen, which leads to things like getting blindsided by a pandemic. An example of this that you give that I really like is, and this is around kind of generational forgetfulness of, I think, the real difficulty of life. You know, we're out here on a planet on like a thin atmosphere and real stuff happens, you know, like real historical stuff, real catastrophes. You talk about how our generations are forgetting the lessons that were learned through the experience of World War II, for example. So I'm curious about how you see these blind spots affecting our work on existential risk in the 21st century and, and the need for embodying this generational knowledge around the reality of existential and global catastrophic risk. Yes. So one bias that human psychology has human cognition has is, if I remember correctly, recency bias, which is that we kind of estimate the probability of uh, things happening by just like doing a quick query to our memory and seeing like if, there's, if there are any examples. And that worked like reasonably well in uh, African savanna 100,000 years ago, whereas now that we're in a constantly evolving environment, this uh, recency bias doesn't really get you like good estimates of probabilities. So in that sense, uh, it's kind of helpful to put something in people's memories that planet-wide problems can happen. So uh, yeah, like after the Second World War, I would claim people were in some sense more sane than they were just a few years ago. Whereas like now, having had this uh, global disaster, we are kind of like have taught other lessons that's kind of very useful to carry around in our memories. I'm somewhat nervous it wasn't bad enough. Yeah, I, I call it like minimum viable global catastrophe. <laughs> So it's very possible yeah. that it wasn't, wasn't strong enough. That's very plausible. But I think it's kind of still, I mean, there's always a trade-off. Like you want the catastrophe for kind of making people aware of purpose to be just strong enough, but not stronger. But it's, yeah, there's always the danger of both undershooting and overshooting. Yeah, let's see what, what happened and hope that this was a, a learning lesson. It's certainly one thing that I, that I kind of see, perhaps like kind of naively, is that uh, there are like, Clearly, voices who are kind of uh, more reasonable and do get uh, kind of a larger audience because they are kind of have been more reasonable and more right about this kind of changing things. Like obviously, there are like counterexamples to that, etc. But it, it's kind of still great to have the fact that you can go and point to people like, look, that guy was always right. That guy was always right. It's kind of just a nice thing to have in your arsenal when you want to kind of talk about the next thing. So as we wrap up here on these categories of existential risk, is there anything that you'd like to wrap up on AI, synthetic bio, unknown unknowns, then climate and nuclear risk before we move on? 
Yeah, I would just kind of stress again that uh, out of those, the list of uh, plausible existential risks, AI is the only meta technology that if we get AI right, we can fix the other technologies. Whereas like, if we fix or fix the other technology, fix the other risks, whereas if you're only going to fix the synthetic biology, existential risk from synthetic biology, we still have the AI risk to deal with. So in that sense, AI is like high leverage in a way that others aren't. All right. So focusing in on AI here then, can you tell me a bit about your thinking on AI adoption as a delegation process? And can you define what AI adoption is? Yeah. So, I mean, over the years, I've been kind of like framing AI differently. I think uh, Max Tegmark used one of my metaphors, AI as a rocket ship that people are just building engines for, but not thinking much about how to kind of make sure it doesn't explode or, or thinking about the steering. I think, think that kind of more seriously, like one interesting, a pretty precise metaphor for AI is uh, you can think of AI as an automated decision process. So AI adoption, be it in economic or military or whatnot context, becomes a delegation. So like people are adopting AI in order to delegate human decisions, or decisions that humans that are too fast, that humans couldn't make to automated systems that have like two important properties. One property is A, they are getting more and more competent over time, as opposed to humans that are at the same level of competence. And B, the AI is not human. In some ways, AI is more alien than alien. It's not a result of biological processes. So it's a very, very different decision maker than humans are. So if you think about it, we are inviting aliens among us and then giving the reins to the planet, to them. Yeah, I mean, Alien from the Alien movie is really an expression of our own mind, a dark thing that we could imagine. So it is closer to us than black boxy machine learning. In a more sort of strict sense, AI, aliens, if they're biologicals, it's very, that if they are produced by evolution, we know that evolution has, is kind of used to doing some things in a certain way, like it has invented eyes multiple times on this planet. So like, it's kind of very reasonable to expect aliens to have like similar eyes, like two eyes and, and similar eyes than we have, if they come from roughly similar environment, because like, it's just like a one clear way to do it uh, using chemicals. Whereas like AI clearly does not have similar eyes than humans, doesn't even like uh, have anything Concept-wise, you can kind of think about cameras as, as AI's eyes, but uh, it's, it's in some ways kind of anthropomorphizing AI. They really aren't. Uh, in that sense, AI is much more alien than any alien, biological alien. Apparently, crabs have been arrived at via evolution through like multiple different evolutionary processes. Yeah, I heard that evolution really likes, really likes to make crabs. Yeah, they're like an attractor in... Is evolutionary space, one might say. Design space. Design space, yes. So there probably would be crabs in other planets, like if they are similar. Okay, so we're going to have crab people showing up in crab spaceships. Possibly. So the point is, is that there are attractors in evolution, but in creating AI, there are also attractors, like architectures mm -hmm. that are attractors, but that designs is that's a completely different part of the design space, a, a space that's more alien. Exactly. The AI design space has totally different constraints. It doesn't have to kind of like feed itself while it's training, uh, which is like really important. It doesn't have to be kind of incrementally constructed. 
you must kind of like redesign things and then like run it again, etc. Whereas evolution can't. So going back to the delegation as a metaphor, I think it's a very kind of productive metaphor to think about because it becomes it kind of makes many claims about AI clear and also like kind of highlights the potential concerns about AI better because like every kind of leader knows that what the dangers of delegation are. Like every leader has like experience delegating things and then like seeing things not ending up the way they hoped. And they have also kind of the various techniques to make delegation go better that might in some sense kind of or to some degree kind of transfer over. So I do think that it's kind of like A, fairly neutral, B, not very science fiction-y, and C, rather productive way of thinking about AI as a delegation process. So it sounds like when you're talking about AI adoption as a delegation process, delegating decision-making and actions to machine systems. So if we think about the AI design space as being different from the evolutionary design space, it sounds like you're talking about AIs as being agentive, but you know we can also imagine in that design space there are other proposals, for example, for oracles and also AI as uh, services. So that's kind of a, like a less agentive thing, but they simply like perform complex actions. I mean, that may still have elements right of delegation to it. So I'm curious how you fit this in with these other considerations. I think that sort of decision making is like a more general or agent that makes like the system that makes decisions is like a more general concept than system that is agenty. So you can you can have an oracle that you still kind of have to decide which result to put first, which one to prioritize. That's still a decision that is making or what kind of sources to query, etc. how to compose things. Those are like series of decisions. So I do think that decision kind of uh, doesn't assume Delegating decisions to like automated systems does not really assume agentiness. That said, I do think that it's kind of very valuable to do like a subcategorization there to indeed start thinking about like what kinds of AIs we are delegating to. And uh, I do think that uh, non-agent AI, to the degree that we can kind of, uh, keep them non-agent, uh, seem to be clearly safer uh, systems to delegate decisions to. Or another great example of um, AIs to delegate decisions to our AIs that do not have any idea that humans exist, uh, that do not have models of humans. So you can have, uh, have AIs that try to just make predictions about uh, chemistry or biology, uh, or microbiology, but do not have like, any models or reasoning about what happens in human society or in particular people's heads, which I do think is like, uh, better avoided. A lot of the creepiness and problems do come from AI. AIs that are built to figure out what humans think. Right. We're talking about a few different forms of AI, and we're talking about it as the adoption of AI as a delegation process. Given the spaces in which AI development exists, so both in federal governments, I'm not sure what the extent of that is, but mostly in private industry, do you think that there are particular kinds of AI in design space that are attractors given the incentives of these spaces in which they're being designed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I do think like uh, AIs that do model and then either implicitly or explicitly manipulate humans are in the design, design space or like in the attractor space. There's like uh, Facebook is here as a prime example, like the sort of purpose, even if not explicitly, perhaps even explicitly, 
but definitely implicit to the purpose of uh, the AI system that uh, Facebook uses are to manipulate the viewers, the humans that interact with the system. Is there anything to do about that? So I'll be kind of careful at this point to kind of uh, say what the exact kind of recipes are to constraining what are the exact things that we, uh, we as society should be doing when it comes to AI to manipulate humans. But I think it's the first step would be just like an admission that it's not clear that they are, these are positive things to have in our society. And if there are examples that we need AIs to manipulate humans, then there better be like very good arguments why. And like selling more stuff to them is not a good reason for having them. Is regulation or governance the mechanism that you see for addressing AIs that manipulate humans by, for example, maximizing the capturing of their attention? Yeah, very possibly. Especially in the EU, uh, EU seems to be much more ahead when it comes to kind of tech regulation than the US because like lobbying pressure, I guess. And I even heard like European Parliament people or like, members of Parliament being kind of proud of the fact that they can regulate tech in a way that the US no longer can. So uh, there might be some... Uh... Yeah, a friend of mine, Andrew Critch, uh, says that uh, one of the really big deals about GDPR was not uh, any kind of object level changes that it brought, which might be like good or bad, like it's going to depend on you. But the fact that it set the precedent, like there is like a very prominent law in the world now that is kind of directly aimed at constraining the tech industry, which like, I mean, I'm not technology myself, right? And I'm a big fan of big, massive investor in, in tech startups, etc. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that I think it kind of should be like completely rearranged and unconstrained as an industry. Yeah. So let's pivot then into a different question. Can you explain your thoughts on your investing activities in AI while also being concerned about outcomes from AI? Yeah, I do get uh, this question quite a bit, like uh, because uh, indeed I both split my time between philanthropy and investments, and philanthropy most of my you know, support goes to organizations and people who are you know, trying to think about how to how can we do AI safely in some ways, do the homework for people who are developing AI capabilities. On the other hand, I do have investments in various AI companies. Most notably, I was an investor in DeepMind before they were sold to Google. And the way I look at it is that uh, I see that I can pretty well function as a connector between the community, AI safety community and AI capabilities community, because I have some kind of street cred in both. So it's, uh, yeah, sometimes I've been joking that it's the reason I've been investing in AI companies is so I could hang around in their kitchens and talk about the dangers of AI which I have literally done. So that's, yeah, like one kind of, sometimes I've done like small investments in AI companies uh, to just have a ticket to talk to people and uh, kind of bring you know, people who are concerned about AI and people who are developing AI together. That has worked pretty well. Sometimes I've done like bigger in AI investments. And uh, like one important consideration there is like to think about what is the counterfactual. Like uh, if I, when people sometimes say that, why are we investing in AI? If you're concerned about AI, they're going to implicitly have this model that if I didn't invest, that those companies wouldn't get money. But that's just not true. Like They would get money from others. And now the question is, like, what kind of money I am displacing on, in their cap table? And uh, there, my you know, goal is to kind of displace the worst kind of money that I call the profit-maximizing money. So, uh, and kind of, so like, yeah, in, in one way, one, some way, I mean, I have a lot of friends in the like, uh, VC industry. And uh, they're greatest people, but I think VC is a like really weird profession because 
from one hand, you are at the edge of the future. You see as it's unfolding, like just is saying that the future is already here, but it's not even distributed. Like the VCC, the place where where the future is is heading. Kind of being born and then but, proliferating. Yeah, so that's the good news. The bad news is, and they can't do anything about it because they have to maximize. They are managing other people's money. So they are expected to always do the things, make the decisions that maximize the profit for the shareholders. So in that sense, I do think VCs uh, are in our fortune for this position when it comes to kind of making decisions that are sort of serving the best interest of humanity. I'm not saying that, that they can't do it. I mean, they can, but they have always this, uh, they have to do it like uh, with a like, human hat on. When they put on the VC hat, they are basically legally obliged to the profit maximization decisions. So yeah, that's, that's one thing that I, I kind of like try to uh, kind of, uh, I kind of trust founders more because founders, at least in particular, I see like many people who are kind of developing potential dangerous technology and they are themselves concerned about it. So yeah, one kind of strategy I have is support uh, those people in order to have them have kind of like more friendly shareholders on their make up bigger part of the cap table by basically investing myself and having people who I think uh, do not have to maximize their profits to go invest. Right. I mean, there are a few, I guess, different dimensions to this. I'm curious what your thoughts are about it. I mean, so shareholders and VCs, I mean, there's a particular incentive structure then within that position that you're saying isn't always aligned with bringing about beneficial futures? Yeah. So, I mean, just that technically, the you know, remit of uh, venture capital firms is that the purpose is to maximize the profits for the LPs, the, the limited partners. So uh, like people can kind of make decisions that go against that mission, but uh, there is always kind of the they're going to take like personal risk when they do that uh, because like LPs can sue them. Yeah, they have fiduciary responsibility to... Exactly, that's what it's called. So yeah, in that sense, like uh, if you're a person, a founder who's developing potential dangerous technology, it's just like much safer to take uh, angel money. Like safer in expectation, you will still have like... Uh, I mean, a lot of angels are still kind of profit maximizing, but at least they don't have to when it comes to kind of legal framework. Okay, and I'm not versed in investing language. So, sorry, a venture capitalist manages a bunch of shareholders' money and an, an angel is, what, an independent individual investor? Exactly. So, angels are basically people who just uh, happen to be wealthy to some degree, super angels, potentially billionaires, and then they just like invest their own money, which means that they are just like completely free to lose it. Whereas uh, a typical, there might be exceptions, but I can't think of any, anyone. VC firms a, they're going to raise funds from places like pension funds and banks and whatnot, or university endowments, and then turn around and kind of invest those in, uh, usually in technology startups or, or various companies. And then their duty is to make those companies as profitable as possible, which means that their hands are tied when it comes to kind of making decisions that potentially might harm. So by investing your own money in places where you can offset the investment of money, which is more firmly tied to just profit maximization strictly, you feel that you can improve positive impact of that company? Yeah, so that is definitely the rationale. And uh, I mean, it's kind of still, I think that the most humble claim I can make is that uh, by not investing other people's money, I do have a degree of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I have the degree of freedom of letting go. 
the profits when it turns out that maximizing profits is, is a bad idea, especially if the founders point that it's a bad idea to take that particular military contract and whatnot. Is there anything else you want to say about this before we move on? I mean, we didn't talk about uh, corporations. Like, and in corporations, there's like the similar you know, selection process that you have people you know, selected. Either you have like founders uh, still in charge, which is like a different situation, or you have people who kind of joined the corporation in order to you know, build their careers. Then you have like the people who have been selected for very different properties, which means that uh, people who are going to have joined the corporation in order to make a career, you will end up with people who are going to be much more representative of the kind of legal landscape or incentive landscape, again, fiduciary duties, etc. Uh, so in that sense, uh, they are going to be more keen to maximize profits. Uh, again, there's potential at the cost of external Yeah, we had Mohammed Abdallah on the podcast to talk about ethics washing. Yep, I heard that podcast. It was great. Oh, cool. Great. So you said that different positions select for different properties. So I think this is really interesting to think about is the kind of sifting and filtration process that happens as you move from bottom to the top of a company and how, you know, as you're moving more to the top, that person is more capable and perhaps more interested in the strict profit maximization incentive structure, whereas you can't get that kind of position if you're not a founder. So if you're a founder, you can bring in an arbitrary Mm -hmm. amount of idealism. But then if you come in later, then the incentive structure for the corporation to continue is for the people at the highest levels to be strictly aligned with the survival of the company and the maximization of profit for shareholders, which then creates a potentially divergence from what is beneficial or good for people in general. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's well put. What do you do about that? I think like one thing to look at is the entire history of uh, environmental movement, because like they kind of fought this battle in like 70s, 80s and won. So uh, clearly now, there are like much fewer companies now who are kind of, uh, maximizing profits at the cost of uh, environmental damage, at least so kind of explicitly. So perhaps there are like, I'm very confident that there would be important lessons to be learned when it comes to kind of environmental movement. Interestingly, I do think that uh, almost all the existential risks would manifest themselves as environmental problems. If you think about asteroid impacts, like, you're not going to die because asteroid is going to hit you. It's just like the environment becomes uninhabitable. Same with like nuclear, just the environment becomes uninhabitable. And same with AI. I think the environment becomes uninhabitable once you have sufficiently powerful AI too. And that's capable of doing geoengineering. All the iron in your food is being assimilated into the, the Dyson sphere. Yeah, although like uh, before that happens, I expect you will like changes in atmosphere, which are kind of like deadly uh, for biologicals. We are very fragile. Biologicals are just super fragile. There's like... Uh, if we like zoom out from the planet, any tiny astronomical scale, temperature change of like 100 degrees is just like ridiculously small. So like if it just make 100 degrees change, it doesn't even matter like if it's Fahrenheit or Celsius, like you die. If you like took a few light years out, like you barely wouldn't notice this kind of tiny fluctuation. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, the international, national and local coordination issues that arise from the adoption of AI as a delegation process. So could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I do think it's very productive in an international context to think about this, to think about AI adoption as delegation. 
basically, you're going to immediately see that like the reason why people, organizations, whatnot, are adopting AI is that they have competitive pressure and the need for increased competence. So they are delegating to AIs for the same reason that they're delegating to employees, hiring employees and delegating to them, just to like get more done before your competitors get this done. So, uh, and the dangers are very similar. You're going to like, get a new employee that's not really aligned, does its own thing, and you delegate something important and like something really bad happens. And like the problems are much worse with AI because again, they're more alien than alien. So you're delegating to someone, you are delegating to a system that just does not care. It really does not care, like in a way that's kind of hard to convey. The reason why you say send robots to space and radioactive areas is they do not care about the environment. We do have a lot of problems from uh, like, uh, economic externalities from uh, big companies, but these externalities are still like very constrained because we have humans in the loop. You know that there's uh, all the decision processes or the main decision processes that uh, companies and various organizations are executing. Whereas uh, it's possible that at some point we might start having, because of like competitive pressures, organizations that are fully automated and like no humans in the loop anymore. And then it's, uh, A, they might be, become like much more faster to keep track of. Just like the automated trading is clearly too fast for humans now to keep track of. And uh, B, they just might be making decisions that are just really, really unethical because they do not care. Machines do not care. Yeah, I mean, right, that's already happening with um, all of the negative impacts of uh, social media and uh, content creation algorithms. Yeah, yeah. I think they are like very early birds. It's going to get way, way worse. Uh, that's the revolution. And it seems like there's a lot more awareness around this. Yeah, there is. A, I think last year there was a survey by Oxford Internet Institute that found that uh, in the US and Europe, there were like significantly more people who expect AI to be harmful than uh, people who expect AI to be helpful. How much of the alignment problem do you think are current difficulties with um, recommender algorithms show us and show the public? I mean, there's a very early examples of alignment problem indeed. But because they are so early, they're also like very noisy and kind of hard to kind of extract the signal from the noise there in order to kind of have like a crisp example of what to expect and what to kind of do. Other than like, yeah, you can kind of abstractly, you can still say things that we have discussed earlier, which is try to minimize the amount of humans being modeled by AIs. And they're going to try to constrain AIs in a way that they don't have like direct optimization. I think Stuart Russell has this interesting point that, uh, well, if you let a reinforcement learner, which is like type of AI architecture, one of the most common types, if you just let it loose in an environment, just as an algorithmic fact, uh, what it does is starts kind of chasing that environment. If you put a reinforcement learning agent in contact with humans, those humans become the environment for that AI that it starts to mess around with. That kind of gives you like one recipe, like, don't put reinforcement learners in contact with humans that way. You know, unconstrained contact. Right. So I mean, a lot of the issue here seems to be incentive structures for corporations. And you have the federal government, for example, which can apply governance and regulation and policy to try and when incentive structures are not necessarily aligned with the public good or the good of the world, you know, policy and regulation can step in. You were talking a bit earlier about climate change and learning from that. One dimension of climate change activism 
is that it's really stigmatized for many people, companies which are not environmentally conscious. And so it seems like we're at the very beginning phase of having a the increase of collective awareness around the negative impacts of algorithms aligned with incentives that don't always end up helping us. And so this is the same way as we've begun to view oil. And so there's this stigmatization, for example, of oil companies for many people. And so I wonder how you view the role of stigmatization in increasing awareness around AI. And then also the flip side where there is also this positive marketing and branding aspect to products now due to climate change, promoting it as this is recyclable or made from recycled components, we're green or like our emissions are this or that. And that helps with uh, selling products. People are interested in that. Do you also see a path forward where tech companies also engage in that kind of like, I guess, mindfulness around their algorithms or something like this algorithm was tested in a, you know, a psychology lab with this many participants, and we've determined it to meet federal guidelines of human well-being impact or something like that. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to think about sort of like very you know uh, strong parallels with like environmentalism and climate change when it comes to you know, AI as sort of like consumer meme, so to speak. So I do think that uh, currently it feels like more productive to kind of do sort of inside work, as I mentioned, you know hang around in AI companies' kitchens and talk to people. Like quite often, the AI researchers, researchers themselves are kind of more concerned than their bosses and uh, you know, more reasonable, frankly, many times much smarter than their bosses. So uh, it's possible that that way we can kind of like figure out and kind of have like leading AI companies start building like good examples. Like I said, AI is like a dual-use technology. Like you can create a lot of value even if we do not follow the direct kind of local incentives to profit maximize. So uh, I'm kind of hopeful to just have like some kind of cooperation, coordination or coalition of AI startups and companies that would kind of directly decide and declare that we're not going to just go with our immediate financial incentives and start manipulating humans in order to milk more money for them. We're actually going to do like, do this like new scientific discoveries and whatnot that are just like obviously net positive. For example, like one thing that I would be very keen to see progress on is like just uh, yeah, figuring out biology and uh, having just eradicating diseases, etc. Like these are way less likely to have like bad, although they, they have their own risks, but they are just, uh, I think, are claim like much more likely to have to be net positive than things that are just like built to maximize next quarterly profits. I guess two things from that. One is, I mean, there's different levels of building that kind of collective coordination from AI companies. Like there's both, you can do that at a national or international level. And some of the international dynamics of that are a little bit different if you go from, for example, the United States to China, where there's a little bit more of a adversarial and a competitive flavor there. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about how you see the potential success of this with regards to just internally in a country, then moving from country to country where there may be something like strong competition? Yeah, so I, I do think that that's like a, going back to the original example of uh, why we can't simply not launch the nukes is that there's international competition and it's like we are going to play slaves to the game theory here. So I do think that uh, we are increasingly slaves to game theory uh, when it comes to AI as well. 
So um, yeah, like because it's still kind of early days. I'm still in a lot of information gathering and uh, networking mode. In fact, I do think this is like one of my strengths uh, when it comes to like uh, the AI safety and X risk ecosystem. I do not come from like Anglo-Saxon culture, and I'm literally sitting between Beijing and uh, and New York. Like there's a little bit more flying time to Washington. Yes, yeah, literally between east and west, and uh, yeah, I kind of try to make friends everywhere I go, and then like uh, make sure that uh, people talk to each other, especially kind of uh, yeah engineers that I meet in the kitchens or AI companies uh, here and there. So yeah, currently I'm just like kind of, trying to build sort of human cooperation because I do think that uh, institutional coordination seems like way harder to build, but if you do have like some kind of like grassroots level of human coordination, it's very plausibly much easier to kind of propagate it up to institutional level. So your recommendation for people would be to form scientific, academic, you know, interpersonal relationships with other with researchers in other countries and you know, this will create bonds and ties that will be really valuable as we move forward. Exactly. I do think that uh, it seems to be that uh, kind of AI researchers are kind of more increasingly uh, concerned about where this thing is going. And uh, like if we are, if this concern kind of like spreads, even perhaps despite uh, profit maximization agents, there might be kind of good things coming out of, out of this kind of concern. And that kind of coordination that is motivated by this concern among researchers themselves. So you also mentioned AI becoming more aware of or putting AI towards working on understanding biology. One thing that this leads to, for example, is longevity, human life extension, and then with uploads, maybe we get closer to something like immortality where like a a human process kind of continues indefinitely into the future. Backups. Backups would be great, I think. I'm actually really like nervous and not very excited about that because I mean there are mm-hmm. a lot of positive things that come with the fact that people die. People grow up in different times and cultures and get trained on a different culture with different values and it's kind of nice having like the personalities and people holding positions and power structures like cycling out. I'm curious what your perspective is on longevity life extension and what could end up being kings and totalitarian regimes of because those people will get the technology first right yeah stable totalitarianism is kind of like a form of like uh, it is a form of uh, stable global totalitarianism is a form of x-risk to the degree that this it is going to kind of like cut off humanity's future potential sure Uh, i mean it feels to me like really drastic measure to avoid that by starting to kill people effectively if you imagine a world where people didn't die, would we as a society decide to kill everyone who gets like to the 80 year level? Or like put it another way, our expected lifetime has increased over the centuries significantly. Why do we think that like now is the best optimal expected lifetime? I would claim that it's kind of unlikely to be the optimal and it's okay to, to keep increasing it. So yeah, I'm pretty bullish, but I, I yeah, sure. Like, I think there are like kind of bad effects from uh, having people that are you know very old and still in uh, positions of, of power. But there also might be good effects from having. Uh, I think I listened to uh, 
at the temperature world. Like, yeah, Vitalik Buderin was, was basically making the same point that, well, we never had experience of having like eight-year-olds olds, like, uh, in our like, leadership positions. Like, there must be some very good things in having uh, some people to actually remember the last 800 years. But sure, there are some bad effects as well. But like, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you do get that generational memory, for example, of other global catastrophes that younger generations don't have as much of an experiential connection to. I'm not claiming that like, it's going to be like a panacea to if everyone uh, just lived, lived forever. Like, there will be lots of new problems. There will be lots of uh, new opportunities. And it will be like a new landscape. But I do think it's a humanitarian disaster that, that so many people die every day. All right. Coming into a home, the home stretch here now. So let's see if we can uh, move through the next few questions uh, a little bit faster. So there's both the, the long-term and the short-term AI alignment or safety communities. I don't really think the short-term community would be called alignment. It's more like, uh, I don't know, like safety and ethics. So from your perspective, could you explain and define what the differences between these two communities, what's most needed here now for both of them and perhaps in their relationship with one another? Yeah, so this is another thing that I've been kind of thinking about quite a bit recently. For example, I, I was part of the European Union's European Commission's AI high-level expert group for like two years. And I saw this uh, battle, so to speak, between uh, kind of uh, people who are thinking about AI as it is now and people who are trying to think about the future AI play out in a way that is that was very unproductive. So one way to look at it, and obviously like people can define how like different definitions, but I do think that like one productive definition would be to kind of draw a line between people and organizations who are thinking about the implications of AI that already exists and is being kind of deployed now. So things like face recognition, Sort of as a technique, it was invented like years, if not decades ago. And people who are trying to think more abstractly about AIs that we do not have yet, but plausibly could have. I mean, ultimately, AIs that can build AIs, for example, in a way that uh, humans can't easily control. There's like a lot of like division of labor to have between those uh, communities. People think about the existing AI and its implications, and they have like different methods they can have different methods and like be like more empirical and the long-term community who are thinking about kind of abstractly uh, about AI that doesn't exist yet. Whereas like, I think unfortunately there has been like too much kind of in some ways rivalry and competition between those groups and kind of dismissiveness from one group to another. I think humanity would win quite a bit or gain quite a bit if those uh, kind of tensions would be lessened between those communities. So I think of the first as being about like ethics, fairness, bias, transparency. That's like one like very plausible research area that both sides should be very interested in. Right. Also justice, the relationship between the use of algorithms and the justice system. One way of looking at this is that the people who are thinking about the implications of existing AI technologies, they have sort of like a subset of like technology ethicists and like uh, legal experts. For them, AI is just another technology. It's not like nothing super extraordinary. Whereas AI, people who are thinking about like superhuman AI and things like that clearly does not exist yet. It's not clear if they can treat it as yet another technology. I see. That's a really good way of, that's a simple way of putting it. The short-term group is basically like 
technology ethicists that engage with this technology as they would any other. And they're looking at the issues that exist today. And then the long-term community is concerned with existential risk and AGI. Among other things. And so we want them to speak and communicate with each other, you know, more effectively. At least not be like in, a, in some kind of like weird adversarial tribal uh, relationship. Uh, where there's like the sense of like competing for funds and like the other people are crazy and they don't understand my side of the issue. Yeah, I think it's just some kind of, I've seen like it play out in just some weird tribal miscommunicational ways where like, to put it simple, like uh, the short people who are focused on AI as a technology that exists now accused uh, long-termists as uh, people who are kind of uh, captured by science fiction. And uh, the vice versa, people in long-termist community just accuse the short-term, like the current AI technologists or AI ethicists as engaging something that's not very relevant, not going to be relevant, just a few years or decades. Or they lack foresight. Exactly. Okay, so could you also describe your current uh, philanthropic efforts, (laughs) for example, through the Survival and Flourishing Funds S process and also your views on software as a philanthropic target? These topics would take another episode, I think. <laughs> but like, yeah. I guess what's a brief overview of what's going on? Yeah. So uh, I've been very interested in trying to figure out how to optimize my philanthropic impact. And uh, being a like, ultimate uh, technologist and software guy, I think two interesting developments that have come out in the last few years were like realizations and developments together with uh, some of my co co-patriots co-workers, teammates, is that, first of all, philanthropy, it seems, can be done much better when you're going to have more software-centric process. So you basically have like tools for philanthropy. So what we are doing, it's kind of a little bit difficult to explain really quickly, but uh, one something that is in this general direction that I mean, description, is that what... uh, process that the survival and flourishing fund is using is it's you can imagine like a free level almost like a neural network on first level you have the applicants the opportunities to fund funding opportunities on the second level, i recall there's a group or committee of uh, what they call recommenders so they're like uh, down there are applicant nodes there are recommender nodes and on top there are donor or funder nodes and then the job of the recommenders is basically investigate the opportunities and everyone independently kind of ranks them by using like three numbers, a marginal value function. But anyway, the point is that they, all, the, all the recommenders rank all the applicants. And then they have uh, like a series of disputes that are recorded where they can look at each other's ratings and kind of bat, sort of like duke it out and battle it out and uh, have as a result, like kind of update or, or arrive at some consensus in some cases but importantly, they don't have to arrive at consensus. They can kind of totally agree to disagree. And then as a final step, the funders can look at the debates uh, that the recommenders had and in turn rank the recommenders. So, and then we have finally like software process that you kind know, of runs a simulated funding process where you have like $1,000 increments go through this like neural network kind of structure where every simulated funder looks at like what is the next best marginal recommender to use for this thousand dollars and then this like recommender goes like okay what the simulator recommender looks at what's the best best marginal opportunity for funding is given like the current funding simulator funding status and then it's just like crank the crank the process and and you will have a list of uh, final allocations 
And the interesting thing is that the recommenders have to do their rankings without knowing what the actual money is that is going to, what their budgets are, what is the actual money that's going to flow through their simulated equivalents. Which means that they just have to be honest and uh, make their recommendations robust to budget changes. So it's like they're incentivized to uh, like, uh, be as truthful as possible and as legible to the funders who basically have the power to kind of like, uh, not fund the particular recommender if they find that this, is kind of, this recommender is not doing a good job. And that there are like, many great qualities about this process that I could kind of go on and on, but I should probably stop there. If people are interested in applying for any grants or funding, uh, where should they go? It's survivalandflourishing.fund. We currently just have a round ongoing. There was like a first plenary meeting on Wednesday, and we're going to have a couple more. The other thing that I've learned when it comes to software and philanthropy is this uh, idea that there's like a, in some ways it's easier to make investments than it is to make kind of philanthropic giving, because like when you're investing in commercial entities, the commercial entities have like external constraints when it comes to like uh, metrics. They can look at like how the product is doing, what are the revenues, etc. Whereas in philanthropy, you necessarily don't have that, say in some cases like giving directly, et cetera, that I'm trying to do uh, measurements. But like an interesting uh, opportunity that I that I've recently been getting more keen about is fund philanthropic initiatives that are trying to develop software. So because like then you might be funding software that doesn't get created by you know, commercial pressures or by the commercial market alone. But on the other hand, you will have a nice kind of metric and constraint. You have a product in the end to measure and see like how effective was that uh, philanthropic project. Therefore, like yeah, I'm getting like more and more keen about uh, funding software that is like developed on a philanthropic basis. The crucial thing really is that uh, this is software that doesn't exist because the commercial ecosystem is not incentivized to create it, and B. Because it doesn't exist, the counterfactuals become very clear. If you fund a philanthropic project and it creates a piece of software, then you can see like what is the value of that software, and then you can measure your philanthropic effect impact. Whereas like if you fund something that just produces like a bunch of research or something like that, it's much much harder to figure out what would have happened if you hadn't funded uh, this particular organization. So nonprofits that will create software that wouldn't have happened otherwise then gives you clear metrics for evaluating your impact, whereas research exactly. and other squishy things is like pretty difficult to measure. Yeah. So I've been, I've been talking to a, a few people along those lines, seeing if there's anything that could be done. But like some things that are squishy seem really, really important. Oh, yeah, sure. So sure. how do you compare the things that are squishy and seem really important and the want to have clear metrics of impact? It's not like an exclusive thing. Like yeah. you, can, you can have like one thing and the other. Yeah, there's just like different philanthropic avenues. And I do think that, uh, yeah, the software is in some sense something I'm keen about because this is where you could actually kind of actively, actively learn and optimize your philanthropy. Have like much better feedback loop when it comes to your own philanthropic effectiveness. Now, again, that is not to say that uh, I would stop doing my other philanthropic activities. So moving along a bit here now, how do you view the project of creating beneficial futures with AI systems in light of the difficulties in relationship between things like value aggregation, multi-multi alignment, and the relationship between philosophy and computer science, and kind of the order of operations of reaching existential security and um, augmenting human intelligence and how these things all sort of fit in together? 
Yeah, I'm not sure if I have like a very kind of a holistic view or plan here, but it feels to me that uh, we would benefit from uh, kind of, uh, trying to resist like the immediate attractors in kind of commercial and, and military and whatnot space and try to kind of, buy us more time and perhaps use that time to build better understanding by doing research, alignment research, and perhaps build better tools, perhaps even in the form of AI or narrow AIs. So uh, yeah, I would be kind of keen on seeing more. I'm very happy that the AI safety community has, or AI alignment community is a has grown like a lot in the last five, six years. And I'm like very happy, happy supporter of that ecosystem. But I also would like to see people from, uh, I'm kind of trying to build some breaches to mechanism design community. People are thinking about what are the new ways to use coordination, various kind of new technologies that could help communities to coordinate and see if, if you can kind of build them in some sense, like more robust civilization. Like one way, one kind of visual you can have is that uh, you can look at the human civilization as like a graph or network of uh, agents that are roughly on the same level. And now we are kind of starting to introduce some weird agents into the mix and they're into that network. And those agents are going to be like increasingly more competent and they are not human. So one way of looking at this, like, can we make this entire network more robust towards introduction of such non-human competent really super fast agents. So uh, yeah, like one kind of research and uh, software development area that I would be keen on, like just is kind of think about uh, yeah, society as a multi-agent system and how can we kind of uh, make it more resilient towards like, disruptions like that. Yeah, it's um, really quite a big transition for the, the first society and civilization and the current most intelligent species on earth to soon introduce a wide spectrum of intelligence. And we have certain kinds of views of identity and personal rights that will begin to be challenged as, you know, you have multiple different levels of intelligence, but how do rights and duties and the pursuit of happiness and the right to life fit in? And, you know, certain intelligences can duplicate themselves arbitrarily and biologicals can't do that as easy. And then, you know, you know what are the ethics of such, yeah, such exactly a big that. interdependent web of many different forms of life. Yeah, one way of, of putting it is that like, we're going to now introduce those like, non-human entities into our civilization and, and our job is to make them care about the rest of the civilization. By default, they will not care at all. That's a really nice and simple way to put it. So as a final question here, and just pivoting a bit, what's one of the most beautiful or meaningful ideas for you that you've encountered or that motivates your life and work? Yeah, this is one of those questions that, that I'm almost certainly going to answer differently if you ask me after I've been thinking about then like an hour about it versus like uh, just one minute. Okay, I think I know. Uh, one thing that uh, is like a very good candidate for an answer is what uh, Toby Ort mentioned in Precipice that hadn't occurred to me before I read the book was that in some ways you can kind of look at uh, our potential failure to survive. AI and other existential dangerous technologies as letting down our ancestors. If you think about our ancestors, like they had a rough life and they still built this amazing world. And maybe if you're just going to run an AI, like let an AI run loose, that's going to just dump the atmosphere. In some ways, the efforts and the hard life 
of our ancestors would have been for nothing. All right. So is there anything else that you'd like to say, just to wrap up, anything that, any parting words, anything you feel is unsaid, any clear, succinct message um, for the audience about existential risk and the key takeaway? Perhaps I would kind of stress again about this uh, idea that uh, like one fairly clear way to think about AI, like there's this uh, game in rationality uh, or technique in rationality community called taboo the word. So one thing that you can do when you want to get more clarity about AI is to like stop using the word AI. Like whenever you like a search and replace in text and uh, replace AI with automated decision making and AI adoption or something similar with uh, delegation to non-human, increasingly competent machines. Sorry, getting more specific about what we're actually talking about when we use different kinds of words? Yeah, so like th- there is this uh, game in rationality community called Taboo the Word. The idea is that uh, quite often the words, people have like, different ideas about the words mean. So it's useful to, instead of using like a shorthand, you're going to expand it out and then you will get other people and even yourself will get like a much better handle on the, on the subject. So I would claim that uh, quite often you can take a text and uh, instead of just like using, oh yeah, AI, I know what AI is, just replace it, replace the AI there with like automated non-human decision maker and AI adoption or AI deployment as delegation to non-human, increasingly competent machines. I get the same feeling uh, for the word AI alignment. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure like it's still a compressed, similar like compressed concept. It's a label. So sure, you can have like a expanded version of it. I haven't thought exactly, I haven't thought much about like what an expanded version of AI alignment would be. So I don't have like a good phrase to expand it out to. All right. If people want to follow you or stay in touch, where are the best places to do that? I don't actually have like, I don't have a Twitter profile. I don't, I do have Facebook profile, but I don't write there much. My investment portfolio is at metaplanet.com. Actually, I don't have like any, any public broadcast channels. I can stand, hang around in the kitchens <laughs> of people that I think. All right. So if you want to find Jan, go catch him at your local AI lab kitchen, exactly. wherever that is. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Jan. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thanks for joining us. If you found this episode interesting or useful, consider sharing it on social media with friends leaving us a review, or subscribing on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the Future of Life Institute podcast.